Good morning. Today's scripture is going to come from Matthew 2, one, verse 1 through 23. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Great job. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can gather and read from Matthew 2 and see the coming king. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, that we would seek it sober-mindedly, that we would see... Um, that our plans and, and our, our shambles compared to yours, God, that we can look to you, trust you, because you are God alone and you have a great plan for us and we can trust in that assured plan. So Lord, help us as we read your word this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's awesome to be with you this morning. Uh, a couple things. Uh, one, Pastor Jeremy, thanks for letting me be up here uh, Two, he has specifically told me to go longer than normal so that when he returns, you all be like, yes. So, um, so we are going to be going through Matthew, all of chapter 2. Yes, that's right. This is the month of March. If you just checked your calendar, um, 
Typically, we do Matthew 2 around December, but I promise you we're in the right passage, and we're going to go until about 1.30, so um, please stay in your seat until then, okay? Most, most times teachers say, if you need to go, do your thing, but in this case, no, stay still. So all, all jokes aside, it's, it's a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Jacob Gaddy, and I am a student pastor here, and I'm thrilled to be with you this morning and share God's word with you. I've been a part of Eastwood for most of my life as I uh, got to see uh, guests and see all of our church members out in between services. Um, I, this is when I say some of you have known me from when I was eight years old in, uh, in the hallways of the children's ministry. Some of you might remember me from when I was a teenager upstairs in the student ministry. And several of you came by and said, you're still eight years old in my mind. And so if that's you, you're in good company. But Eastwood has been home for me, and it's seen me in some of my best days and definitely in some of my worst days. I'm thankful for Christ-like men and women in this church who have been faithful across all of these years to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with me and teach me. As a college freshman, I hit the lowest point of my life. I struggled and wrestled with deep existential questions. Who am I? What am I doing on this earth? And what is the meaning of life? I hadn't been going to church at this point, and at that, this point I was going against all of the teaching and guidance that I had been raised to follow. And one evening I decided in my dorm room to open a Bible and see what it had to offer me. I thought, well, it couldn't hurt at this point. So I opened to the book of John that I was most familiar with, and I read the verse that God used to change my life. And that was from John 1.16 that says, For from his, being Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And it was that night that I experienced grace in the face and person and work of Jesus Christ. All of the attempts at being the good Christian kid, all of the religious duties that I thought were enough, and all of the shame that I felt because I could never keep any of that act continuously going, fell off of my shoulders like an inexplicable amount of weight. I confessed my sin, I repented of it, and it was that night that I trusted with full faith in Jesus Christ, the giver of grace upon grace, and instantly felt the Spirit of God. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, I was a new creation. And as Romans 8 says, I was free from the power and chains of sin. Just like Jesus spoke to the disciples in the upper room, that spirit of truth was given to me to indwell in me forever. And from that moment, Jesus began to change my life. And in this moment before you, Jesus is still changing my life. He has freed me from the weight of sinful anger. He's done a great work in helping me to see my worth and value in him, not in any prideful or boastful efforts. And he is redeeming me today from endless pursuits of passions. And in short, the God-sized hole that you and I have in our hearts is constantly learning and finding great joy in knowing that Jesus Christ is everything that I was looking for and everything I long for is in him. That night was actually March 10th, 2013, so I just had a mini celebration over the weekend. Honestly, I forgot about it because I'm not really that concerned with it, but just celebrated over, over nine years of faithfully following Jesus, stumbling forward, a sinner saved, and, it, and it's changed my life in all of the best ways. So I share that with you this morning because my journey with Jesus is still going, and with that, a lot of you have seen me grow up, and let me just tell you this. In, in full uh, assurance that I am absolutely humbled to be with you this morning and stand in this pulpit and share with you from Matthew chapter 2. So in Matthew chapter 2, 
This chapter details the days following the birth of Jesus the Christ. We see the stark contrast and division between the intentions of Herod and his desperate desire between the, uh, uh, for reign and rule as king and how the Lord guides this series of events for his own glory. So this may be a different approach that you've experienced before, but what we're going to do is we're going to go through Matthew 2 from the lens of Herod's continuous, continuously changing plans, and then we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 2 and we're going to see how God has worked through it. Now, seriously, at this point, you're thinking, all right, 1.30, buckle down. I promise you, we, we, got, we got done on time uh, in, in the first service, so we're going to roll through this. And I would encourage you to uh, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 2 so we can walk through this together. So first, let's look at the ever-changing plan of Herod, and then we pick up in the very beginning with Herod's plan A. It says in the beginning, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But when Herod, heard the, uh, Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So this begs the question, who is King Herod? You may be familiar with him from a Christmas narrative standpoint, but let's do a deep dive. King Herod was a king ruling under Roman authority. He was appointed by the Roman Senate of Judea in 40 B.C. His father was a high-ranking official under Roman rule. And historians believe that due to his father's relationship with an official that you might know of, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, this, this relationship that his father had helped appoint Herod to this role. During his tenure, Herod was impressive to the Roman Senate because he had a great ability to rule the people, to bring in tax money, and build a great fortress. Towards the end of his tenure as king, historians center their attention on the paranoia and uh, tyranny of Herod. A first century historian by the name of Josephus recorded that Herod's primary focus of building the fortress resided in the fact that he was heavily paranoid of losing his reign as king. And Herod would eventually murder his two sons because of rumors he had heard about them attempting to overthrow him. This account of Herod is just a simple glimpse and insight into the influence that he had, but also his extreme jealousy. He was a man that was truly hell-bent on being in control and having complete and total say on any matter. Now, knowing this, we pick up in verse 1 to see that Jesus had been born in the land that Herod was ruling over. It's safe to assume that Herod could have cared less about an infant under his reign, that is, until an interesting assortment of individuals come into Herod's land declaring that there is an infant who had been born king of the Jews. So who are the wise men? Well, I'm glad you asked. The wise men, as we see depicted in Matthew 2, are experts in astrology and black magic. They're mentioned in Daniel 2 as sorcerers. And the only other time they are mentioned in the New Testament, Paul says that this individual was a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, and full of all deceit and villainy. And then asked the man if he would stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord in Acts chapter 13. So you may have heard from Christmas songs that these were kings or wise counsel, but the truth is that's not true. We would equate them today with those who are heavily into astrology, who read tarot cards, who read palms and tell fortunes. So there's a group of men, just like this one, who are seeking Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is already a glimpse of the truth that we see in this passage, that God is the God of all things. 
that astrologers and those who practice black magic are flocking to Jesus. This is a taste of the new covenant and the kingdom of God that will soon inaugurate in Jesus Christ. A people from a wide variety of backgrounds who have repented of their sinful ways and trust in Jesus Christ and worship the King of Kings. So based on what we know then, we can accurately unpack the initial impression that Matthew pins about Herod in verse 3. That when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod is genuinely worried. Imagine yourself as a fly on the wall. An anxious, fear-driven king is approached by men who practice sorcery, claiming that a child had been born who would be the king of the Jews. That's the current title that Herod is holding. And the fear begins to swell in his mind and his heart. Herod immediately gathers his legal counsel, his closest associates, and his now newfound friends and the sorcerers to inquire about this child. The Magi share with King Herod and his constituents what the prophecy from Micah 5 says, that this king would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. You can imagine the increasing swelling of fear that happens in Herod's mind that he hears that this infant king would be under his reign and rule. So plan A, then, is for Herod to gather intel and learn about this situation. At this point, he feels the urge and need to act, but he needs more information before he can move forward. He's trying to decide what to do. So here's the root issue of Herod's plan A. Herod desires status. And for you and I, we have a desire to be declared the Lord over our lives, to be seen as influential and powerful. So as soon as he hears the words of Micah's prophecy in verses 3 and 4, he moves into a new plan, which is plan B, verses 7 and 8, which say, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So why does uh, Matthew include this in his gospel? Well, we see that Herod's heart, as the prophet Jeremiah would say, is deceitful above all things. And that our heart is desperately sick. We know that there's great deceit in Herod's heart because asking this question would eventually lead him to commit mass murder of children later on in this chapter. Herod's desire to be seen as welcoming and as a worshiper, but his wickedness and deceitfulness, as we see, is on full display. So Herod into, enters into this new plan, plan B. His paranoia led him to just learn more about the situation, but as it's developed considerably, now we see that he's plotting to do something about it. After learning more about this king of the Jews that the Magi speak of, Herod sends them to find him. Church, I love you. And because I love you, you I want to tell you this truth. Students, you hear that a lot, right? You and I are prone to such levels of deceitfulness. In all honesty, we have gone to such depths of deceit already before in our lives. We desire to be in control, to be recognized, to receive applause, to be awarded, to have our name be made much of. And so we have worked to that end in our own sinful ways. 
Because this is true, we work around situations in a way that would, like Herod, make us be seen as innocent and merely a spectator. When behind the scenes we're manipulating people in situations for our own end. In, in other words, Herod externally cries here to worship this king of the Jews. But in all reality, internally, his heart's cry is, I want to be worshipped. And let me just ask you rhetorically, what is the cry and longing of your heart? To worship or to be worshipped? So time passes Uh, We tend to read straight through these verses as if they're chronological, but we have to recognize that there's some space between Herod's sending of the wise men and the wise men finding Jesus' family, their departure away from Judea, and and Joseph and his family's trip to Egypt. Now here in verses 7 and 8, Scripture doesn't explicitly say, uh, uh, say it, but Herod, imagine as he's waiting and waiting and waiting that his paranoia begins to swell even more. That he has anxiety and anxiousness to the core. His fear and desperate grasp for control has already driven him to do unspeakable acts. And this stewing on a future reality of losing the throne must have made him totally unbearable to be around. So plan B then is to use the Magi for his gain. He's seemingly sending the Magi as a gracious king, but he's actually manipulating them for his unspoken reason, which we know is to find the infant king and to do something about it. So here's the root issue of plan B. So A was status. The root issue of plan B is that Herod desires to be in power over others. And for you and I, our desire to be in power over others is great, much like Herod, no matter who is in the way. So finally, the endless waiting for the return of the wise men leads Herod to assume that he'll never know the answer. He was set on ending this chatter of a new king, but now that the specific plan is out of the question. Herod's paranoia, his fear, and anger has totally erupted, causing a new widespread destructive plan C. And so what we see in plan C in verses 16 and 18 is that then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or older, or under, excuse me, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Fear and the reality of losing our grip on things can drive us into two places. The first being a sense of relief that we are not in control, but probably more so that we see that because we don't have control, it sends us into a sense of rage. But the beauty of the gospel this morning for you, church, is that we can find ultimate relief and satisfaction that God is sovereign that he is in control at all times. That when our square foot of the world seems to be in chaos, God is not surprised. There is no point in which God is surprised at any of these events taking place. So then Herod sends out this deathly decree. Herod sends the message to go and kill all the male children in Bethlehem according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod's plan, if you're reading this, 
correctly, is to rewrite history. He's heard the words of the Magi who are traveling on the basis of the words of Micah, which you and I know is true prophecy, spoken words from God. And prophecy in, in Herod's mind is able to be denied because of his power, or so he thought. And historians refer to this event as the massacre of the innocents. Again, Herod's grasp for ultimate reign is a sobering depiction that often resembles my heart and yours. Idols, whatever they may be, cause us to do terrible things in order for them to be praised. And they lead us to believe that no matter what is true, truth doesn't know what's best for us. We wrongly believe the lie that we are, what we are seeking after is going to provide the satisfaction and longing in our hearts, despite what the truth is. Idols cause us to do clearly ignorant things. So Herod attempted to rewrite history by clearly going against the prophecy of Micah. But what actually happens that we see in verse 18, 17 and 18 is that Herod fulfills the prophet, another prophecy of Jeremiah. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. So as we will see when we view this story from the perspective of God, Herod is constantly adjusting and changing his mind as to how he's going to deal with this situation. Plan C then is to murder every son under his reign and rule under three years old and under. This child is attempting to gain Herod's status as king. So Herod is going to go to great lengths to fix this issue. And so here's the root issue of Herod's plan C. It's that Herod desires to be in control. And for you and I, we desire to be in charge and in control at all times, no matter what the cost. So what can we conclude about Herod's plan? Well, it's really not a plan at all. It's rapidly changing and driven by his emotions. His sinfulness is on full display as he grasps for status, power, and control by any means necessary. Herod has led himself to believe that he is meticulously deceptive and conniving. And in a sense, that's true. He's used people up to this point to his advantage while seeming to be a genuine and honest king. However, the unfolding reality is that each plan is thwarted and eventually it all ends in failure. God sees the shifting mind of Herod and all of his actions are of 0% surprise to the Lord. Herod has moments and signs of potential success which drives him forward. Again, you and I are likely to jump into this story as if we are the, the wise men or the magi seeking Jesus. Or at best, a neutral party just watching the scene from afar. I'd really encourage you to take a sober self-assessment uh, here real quick and see if you notice how your thoughts and desires may align a little more closely with King Herod. For those of us in Christ, we're a new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, and we're free from the sin and power, uh, from, from the power and weight of sin, like Romans 8 says. So we can thank and praise God for salvation and Him alone that frees us. And a, but apart from Christ, we're captive to the endless and vain pursuit of our idols, like King Herod. And just like this self-absorbed king, we too will spiral out of control and eventually end in failure apart from Christ. So as we conclude with the reality of Herod's humanity and broken efforts to be in charge, we return 
to the beginning of Matthew chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that God moves throughout this chapter. I want to make clear that your notes this morning are uh, correct, and they've been intentionally created this way. We see that Herod's uh, plan changes from plan A to plan B to plan C. But what we're going to see is as we read Matthew 2 again from the lens of God's plan, that it is a one continuous plan with many parts. And what you'll see, and just go ahead and give you preface with this, is that God's plan never changes. Ever. It's one continuous, unfolding plan that is directly opposite of the ever-shifting plan of Herod. So let's see from the beginning in God's plan, part one of verses one through three. Now we've already read this from the perspective of Herod, right? So let's read it again from the perspective of uh, the lens of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw, excuse me, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So who is Matthew 2 namely about? Jesus, the infant king, the coming Christ, the true king of the Jews. Now at this point, I'm sure you're familiar with the birth narrative, right? The virgin mother Mary has her baby in a stable, in a barn. It's worth noting here that this was a holy night, but I don't know about quiet or a silent night uh, because he was in a barn. Okay, I digress. We'll talk about that in December. Um, But in any case, after hundreds of years of silence, God steps into time and space as the Son incarnate, Jesus the Christ, as a baby. We learned in Matthew 2 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the reign of a king who was, by most standards, a lunatic. While we spent much time so far reading Matthew 2 from the, the viewpoint of Herod, it's clear that it's Matthew 2 is about Jesus. One commentator notes that verse 2 announces clearly whom this story is really about. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod had been called king of the Jews by the Senate in Rome for almost 40 years, but no one called him Christ or Messiah. Messiah means the long-awaited God. Uh, the anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule and bring in the end of history and establish the kingdom of God and never die or lose his reign. So before I jump into this next part, let me just tell you that as, as a student pastor here at Eastwood, we have started learning as a student ministry about theology. We've been calling it Summit Sessions where we just have been going through uh, systematic theology and learning piece by piece. And we've been learning about the Word of God. And so two weeks ago, we talked about the canon of Scripture. Again, not a boom canon, C-A-N-O-N, just one N. Talking about how we got Genesis to Revelation, how we have one Bible. And then last week, we talked about how the Word of God was authoritative. And it gives and it has authority and tells us what to do, not because God is trying to uh, force us into a miserable life, but because God's rule and his law and commands are good for us. It gives us the true life that we are looking for. And so we're giving a little bit of jumping ahead. So this is extra credit, students. Um, but what we see in Matthew chapter 2 is what theologians refer to as the sovereignty of God. Or you may have heard omnipotence, meaning that God is all-powerful. And what we learn here is that God is completely able to do all that is within his holy will. Now, that, that word holy is extremely important because God is holy and right and just, and he cannot do anything outside of that. 
right? God cannot lie. God cannot be dishonest. So when we learn about the sovereignty of God, we're learning that God has a holy will. And we see clearly in Matthew 2 that God is sovereign over the coming of Jesus Christ and that the Father has sent the Son to usher in God's kingdom. It's the exact message that Jesus declares as he bursts onto this to the scene in his ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We see that in Matthew 4, 17. So it's vital to recognize a key point in these first two verses. God, in his unfolding plan, sends the magi or the wise men via the star. The rest of Matthew 2 builds off of this reality. How is it that Herod is told of the coming king? And how is it that Herod attempts to plan accordingly? Well, through the magi who were guided, how? By the leading of God himself through the star. And Psalm 19.1 says that, says that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see, God says that the heavens are his. They shine, they move, and they exist because of God's plan. And if this is true, and it is, then God can cause them to work according to his plan. So God has appointed this time to come, and here it is. The infant king, the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, has come. He is glorious beyond all compare, and no earthly ruler will thwart what God will do. So Herod begins to figure out how to undermine and compromise the unfolding plan of God. But after he has done so, we come to the second part of God's plan in verses 9 through 12. So after listening to the king, they, being the Magi, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the, uh, the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him in gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we've seen that, God, uh, that Herod has shifted his plan. He's trying to figure out where this so-called child king is. And I can't help at this moment to geek out, if you just give me some space, of the interconnectedness. The interconnectedness of the plan and desires of Herod and God's true plan. If you read back in those verses, Herod shifts, and I can't help but have a, this mental picture of God smirking and saying, yeah, good call. Let's see how that one shakes out for you, buddy. Uh, but verse 9 tells us, after listening to the king, they went on their way. Now, do you, do you see the interconnectedness there? In verse 9, who sends the Magi? It's King Herod. But who really sends the Magi? The true king, God. And so I, in my notes, I just wrote um, that, um, where is it? That uh, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And I was like, that's exactly correct. They have listened to the king. And the king has ultimately done what the king Jesus and, and, and God has told them to do. So God is intricately involved in Matthew 2, just like he's intricately involved in my life and yours. So the Magi continue to follow the star, and they find the king of the Jews. The literal rending of the original language says that they had exceedingly great joy. They have been led by God this whole time to find this child, and they see that he indeed is a king. They worship him, and it's safe to assume that they have turned away from sorcery, black magic, and vain pursuits of wisdom, and have seen wisdom 
in the face of this child. God surely is omniscient. He's all-powerful. He can work in the midst and, and leading of the Magi to see Jesus for who he truly is while simultaneously working to dethrone Herod and bring about the new kingdom of heaven. God is so much more than just a multitasker. He is truly God. This is the kind of truth that sets you and I free from our own paranoia and our own anxiety. The God is actively working, and Scripture says it's for our good. So the Magi see and worship Christ the King, and then they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. I hope you're catching on. Is this happenstance, as, as Paul would say in Romans, by no means. You see, God, through a dream, has led the Magi away. So this part of God's plan sends the Magi away, and out of the rest of the chapter, God continues with a part three in his unfolding plan with Mary and Joseph in verse 13. So read with me in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God continues to unfold his plan by leading the new family with their child away from the area that Herod has issued mass murder for newborns, boys under three years old. Joseph, in this verse, is a faithful follower of the Lord. Matthew is quick to affirm every time that the Lord speaks, Joseph says yes. And can I just give you a personal note about this? I hope that's said to be true about my own life. And I hope that that's something that you desire to have said about your own life. That every time God speaks, that you would be a person that's faithful to say yes. But we don't have time for more of, of Joseph's story. So God sends the angel and, and the family away to safety. And, and the next two verses tell us why, which is God's plan part four. So we read in verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And it may seem like God is dodging bullets here from Herod, that, that God is stepping back and saying, okay, ooh, how, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? Um, let, let's move on. But the reality is that every movement is fulfilling prophecy. And we see that this is a prophecy fulfilled in Hosea 11.1. 1. So God has sent the true king of the Jews in the first two verses. And now he's warning the family to go somewhere else for their safety's sake. And we move into the fifth part of God's plan in, in Matthew 2 as prophecy continues to be filled in verses 17 and 18. Then what was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, to be honest, this is a difficult part, maybe the most difficult part of this chapter. Because we see the innocent ones of Judea be slaughtered by the decree of a wicked tyrant king. What makes this difficult is that this horrible act fulfills prophecy, which tells us that this event is too not a surprise to God. After all, the prophets in the Old Testament took the words of God given by God and declared it to the people to be a mouthpiece for God himself. And I want to be very clear here regarding these, these verses. God himself knows and even allows this event to happen. However, God himself has, has no part in causing this, and he did not plan this event to happen. There's a very clear difference between God allowing this to happen and God himself making this happen. My, my dear friend, whom I love, Matt Johnson, gave me some great insight as we were talking about this, and he said, it's important to add that a lot of history helped people, helps people understand the weight of this passage. 
History must be taught or we are doomed to repeat it. Refusal to follow God's ways affects even the most innocent of people. And in this case, it's the newborn children of Judea and the surrounding villages. So this set of verses should cause us to see that God alone is Lord over all things. It should cause us to burn with righteous anger against those who have committed evil acts against innocent people. These verses end with a sense of some relief in verses 19 and 20, which is the next part of God's unfolding plan in 19 and 20, part 6. They read, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to, to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, I have to be honest, when I get to this point of the story, because I've been soaking in Matthew 2 all week, uh, I feel, even in this moment, a deep sense of justice. I was admittedly grateful that Herod died, and I kind of felt bad about it for a little bit, but then I realized that Herod's death is actually a fulfillment of prophecy as well, holy fulfillment. God alone is the God and Lord over all things, including the end of life for this tyrant king. He is a fleeting person in the grand narrative of the Lord's status, power, and control. So this part of God's plan is joyous. The danger of Herod's reign is gone. So then as we continue in plan, the last part of God's plan, part 7, we see in verse 23 that he, Joseph, went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph and his family lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So here's, the, again, the unfolding plan of God. From the ground view, Jesus uh, and his family moved for safety's sake. But from the aerial view, God is continuing to fulfill prophecy. Church, let me give you some great comfort as we get ready to conclude. You and I have a Lord and God that is always working. He is not like you and I. He does not need rest or sleep for a third of the day or students and college students half of the day. Uh, and he definitely doesn't need vacation days. Um, we, may, we may not see how he is working in every moment, but we can rest assured that God's plan is good. For believers in this room, it is the calling of your life to share the good plan and news of God. Even if you've been following for just an hour, you have the story of the gospel to share. And even if, you, and if you've been following Jesus for longer than I've been alive, you have story after story about how God has been faithful over and over again. Bringing you to this moment that God is faithful and he's got a good plan for our lives. So I want to leave you with two things. One being what to know and what to do. What you should know is that God alone is the God and Lord over all things. He is a good God with a great plan. His plan is so vast that it includes a plan for the whole scope of creation. But it is so intricate that it includes a great plan for my life and for yours. And Herod is just one example of an earthly king that abuses power in a long line of kings and kingdoms that shake their fist at God. And not one of these kings or kingdoms is outside of the plan of God. And then here's what you can do, church. If you believe this morning, you can trust and have assured faith again and again, even today, that God's plan for us is good in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe this morning, you are ready to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Christ, you today can trust and have assured faith in God's plan in Jesus Christ. We see from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis that God is creator. 
He's created all things and everything in it. He's created mankind to know him, serve him, love him, and be loved by him. It doesn't take long for the two people of of mankind to proverbially shake their fist at God. We turn our backs to the lordship of God and desire to have status and control. This great rebellion happened in the garden, initiated by them, and yet you and I initiate it every single day. This great rebellion is sin, and it causes a broken relationship between us and God. But the good news of the gospel that we see in Matthew 2 is that God the Father sends the Son to redeem broken people and restore a right relationship with God. While we were still sinners, as Paul says in Romans 5, Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. And it's, he unpacks that in Romans 5 and says, For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, and yet Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. His enemy, his opposition. And the gospel message is sufficient well, uh, and to redeem every single sinner for those who repent of their sin and desire to be the God over their own life. To trust in the life, death, and the resurrection of Christ. Let me just conclude with this. Church, turn your plan over to God, to the Lord who is Lord alone over all things. You will hand off your, just like King Herod, your perceived control, status, and power, and find all of those things in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You will want to magnify Jesus and see, I don't have any power, Jesus has the power. I don't have any control, Jesus has a control. I don't have any status, it's Jesus alone who has the status. And let me encourage you with that this morning, to continue to do that if you know and believe Christ, and if for the very first time, repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation alone. So as we close... Believer, trust in the unwavering plan of God. Because God alone is God and Lord over all things. And we can trust and have assured faith in God's plan for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ.